Hello and welcome everyone to the 10th episode of our weekly podcast India Colonized. I am your host Umar Ha. And in this episode we will be talking about the mysterious distribution of chapatis. Yes, chapatis. Chapatis which had the British puzzled. It did not only feed hungry stomachs but it also fed on empty brains, giving rise to rumors all around the world of 1857. It is here a most mysterious affair going on throughout the whole of India at present. No one seems to know the meaning of it. It is not known where it originated, by whom, or for what purpose. Whether it is supposed to be connected to any religious ceremony or whether it has to do with some secret society. The Indian papers are full of surmises as to what it means. It is being called the Chapati movement. This is written by Dr Gilbert Haddo in his letter to his sister in Britain in March of 1857. The movement that Haddo was describing was a remarkable example of a rumor gone wild. It consisted of the distribution of many thousands of chapatis that were passed from hand to hand from village to village throughout the north of subcontinent. The chapatis were real but no one knew for sure what they were for. Most Indians thought that they were the work of the British. The British, who had nothing to do with the mysterious transmission, guessed that the bread was piece of mischief making on the part of Indians. Although opinion was divided whether the bread came from Calcutta, from the north, or in the province of Awadh or from Indore, extensive inquiries into the meaning of the bread brought about plenty of theories but few facts. even the runners and watchmen who baked them and carried them from village to village did not know why they had to run through the night with the chapatis in their turban though they took them just the same the chapati movement first came to the attention of the british early in february of 1857 one of the first officials to encounter it was mark thornhill a magistrate in the little indian town of mathura near agra Thornhill came into his office one morning to find four dirty little cakes of coarsest flour about the size and thickness of a biscuit lying on his desk. He was informed that they had been brought in by one of his Indian police officers who had received them from a puzzled village chokidar. And where had the chokidar got them? Thornhill examined the chapatis in his office. They bore no message and were identical to bread cooked in every home in India. Yet discreet inquiries soon revealed that many hundreds of chapatis were passing through his district and through other parts of India as well. Everywhere from the Narmada river in the south to the border with the Nepal several hundred miles to the north. That rate in which the chapati spread was particularly disconcerting because it was vastly swifter than the fastest british meals the urgent inquiries were made as to the source of the meaning of the movement they yielded the information that the bread was being distributed far more widely than anyone in agra had yet realized and that the indians who received them generally took them as some sort of a sign beyond that however opinions remained divided numerous explanations were considered a few suggested that the chapatis might conceal seditious letters that were forwarded from village to village read by village chief again 
crusted over with flour and sent in the shape of chapati to be broken by the next recipient. But an examination of the bread revealed no hidden messages. The British were extremely spooked by the spread of the chapatis. Vital though their Indian empire was to them, they controlled the subcontinent with a comparatively handful of men. About 100,000 in all less than half of whom were soldiers, ruling over a population of 250 million. And they were all too aware of just how inadequate these numbers would be in event of any serious rebellion. That, combined with the declining number of British officers who understood India, spoke the Indian languages fluently, or had any real sympathy for the people whom they ruled, meant that the colonial hierarchy remained perpetually jittery. Tall tales, panic and rumours spread readily in such climate, and plenty of people felt a certain disquiet in the early months of 1857. Kim Wagner notes that the British regarded with deep suspicion, bordering on paranoia, any type of communication in India which they could not understand. The colonial administration well understood that rumours, however unfounded, could have serious consequences. And there were plenty of notably more dangerous urban legends about. One popular story widely believed suggested that the British were attempting the mass conversion of their subjects to Christianity by adulterating their flour with bone meals and cows and pigs which was forbidden to Hindus and Muslims respectively. Once defiled, the men who had consumed the forbidden meal would be shunned by their co-religionists and would be easier to bring them into Christian fold or could be sent as soldiers overseas because crossing the black waters being forbidden for Hindus. Most worrying of all, some very familiar rumours had once been recorded to the south in the Madras Presidency in 1806. At the time of a serious outbreak of mutiny among the Indian soldiers stationed at Vellore, as John K. wrote a few years later, among other wild fables which took firm hold on the popular mind was one to the effect that company's officers had collected all the newly manufactured salt, had divided into two great heaps, and over one had sprinkled the blood of hogs and over the other the blood of cows, that they had then sent it to be sold throughout the country of the population and desertion of Mohammedans and Hindus that all might be brought to one caste and to one religion like the English. By the time of Chapati movement, no more than a handful of aged India could remember such long-ago events as the Velour Mutiny. But those who did would not have been surprised by what happened next. For some very similar beliefs were spreading in the early months of 1857. A rumour that spread like wildfire among the sepoys stationed at the cantonments throughout the north of the country was that the British had come up with yet another diabolical contrivance for breaking their caste and defiling their bodies the Grease cartridges. It was no secret that the company's army had been making preparations for introduction of a new sort of ammunition for new model of the Enfield rifle. 
to be loaded, this cartridge had to be torn open so that the powder in it contained could be poured down the barrel of the muzzle-loading gun. Because the soldier's hands were full, this was done with the teeth. Then the bullet had to be rammed down the rifled barrel. To facilitate its passage, the cartridge were greased with tallow, which in the United Kingdom was made of beef and pork fat. The greased cartridges that posed precisely the same threat to the observant sepoys as would floor adulterated with the blood of pigs and cows, and though the British recognized the problem early on and never issued a single greased cartridge to any Indian troops, fear that the company was plotting to defile them took hold among the men of many Indian regiments and resulted in the outbreak of rebellion in the cantonment of Meerut in April 1857. By the time the British came to examine the cause of the rebellion, therefore, the Chapati movement had assumed a fresh significance. It was generally believed in retrospect that the circulation of the bread had been a warning of trouble ahead, and that the wave of Chapatis must have been set in motion by a cunning group of determined conspirators who had begun plotting the rising for months if not years in advance. The rapid spread of disorder in 1857, when regiment after regiment had mutinied and revolts against the British rule had sprung throughout the most of northern and central India, made it almost impossible to believe that the rebellion could have been spontaneous, as most modern historians concede it was. And considerable efforts was made to chronicle the movement and to trace the spread of the anomalous chapatis. The irony is that all this effort actually supplied historians with evidence that the Chapati movement had nothing at all to do with the outbreak of the disorder some months later, and that the circulation of the breads early in 1857 was nothing more than a bizarre coincidence. Kim Wagner, who was made the most who made the most recent study of the phenomenon, concludes that the movement had its origin in Indore a princely state still nominally independent of British rule, and that it began as an attempt to ward off the ravages of cholera. The geographic circulation at Chapatis was not systematic or exponential. Their transmission was erratically linear and different currents moved at different speeds. Some currents simply ran cold, while others moved in parallel or paused before continuing. Thus, long after the Chapatis reached their northernmost point of Meerut, there was another northern, northwards distribution from Kanpur to Fatehgarh, which was widely reported in newspapers, and the circulation took place along well-established routes of transmission, which followed main trade and pilgrimage routes between the bigger cities. At some point, the Chapatis passed beyond the limit of their meaningful transmission and simply continued through the country as a blank message. This allowed different meanings and interpretation to be attributed to them and that the Chapatis became an index of people's thoughts and worries. Furthermore, the superstitious impulse that still encourages the transmission of chain letters clearly applied in 1857. 
Although the originally specific meaning of the chapatis had been lost early in the distribution, the dire consequence of breaking the chain of transmission remained, and thus ensured their successful circulation over an immense area. In the event, the chapatis were not harbingers of a coming storm, they were what people made them into and the significance attributed to them was a symptom of the pervasive distrust and general concentration among the Indian population during the early months of 1857. Seen from a distance of 150 years, the Chapati movement can appear a quaint anomaly, a strange and colourful rumour of interest mostly to historians and psychologists, and yet, it is just as possible to see the bloody results of mutual incomprehension between the British and native communities in India. As a potent reminder that mistrust and panic can have serious consequences, these are deep waters that we trawl in, and dangerous ones too. Thank you everyone for tuning in for today's episode. We hope you liked our episode and if you did, please consider subscribing to our podcast. We also upload written transcripts of the episode. To read or share them, please visit our website www.indiacolonize.com. The link is also given in the description below. We plan to roll out a newsletter soon, so if you want to keep yourself updated about stories and legends of a colonial past, consider submitting your email addresses to our mailing list on our website. So until next time, take care, stay curious and stay safe.